0: ScaleNet Nation, how vulnerable are you and how secure are your passwords? This is a question that I think a lot of us are asking more and more with all of the reports that we're hearing on the news. One of the easiest things that you can do is use a program for your passwords like LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate passwords. It will store it behind a master password. It will allow you to share it with people without actually giving them your passwords. It even will autofill on websites. There's so many features that LastPass offers that makes your online experience so much safer. I've been using LastPass for years, and you can start using it too by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash LastPass to see if one of their offerings is right for you. And folks, they even have free programs. So don't leave yourself vulnerable any longer than you have to. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash LastPass. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore. I get to host this fantastic podcast called Scaling Up H2O. And you, the fantastic listeners of this podcast, I affectionately call the Scaling Up Nation. We are an entire nation of people that want to get better, that want to challenge ourselves, that want to make the industry that we are in better for the simple fact that we chose to be in it. And I know that we do things each and every day to try to improve ourselves and try to improve the industry. And one of those things that we do, at least on a weekly basis, and our friend James McDonald helps us out each and every week with that, is we do a new James's Challenge.
1: Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional, drop by drop, is...
0: Explain to a non-technical person how an absorption chiller works. I've always wondered what intoxicated engineer thought it was a good idea to use hot steam to make chilled water. But engineering is magic, after all. Absorption chillers work differently than compression
1: chillers. They pose different challenges. Explaining the mystery of absorption chillers to a non-technical person will not only help you think more deeply about them, but will blow their minds as well. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH20. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share.
0: Nation, as many of you know, several years ago, James put in the paperwork to declare the first full week of October our holiday, Industrial Water Week. That is coming up October 4th, Monday through Friday, a brand new episode for you, the Scaling Up Nation, of course, Scaling Up H2O's free gift to you, well, it's kind of free, You don't really have to pay for it, but what I'm asking you to do is help us celebrate. And let's celebrate big this year. Make sure that on pre-treatment Monday, you take a picture in front of your favorite water softener. On Boiler Tuesday, do the same thing with a boiler. On Cooling Wednesday, I know you have a favorite cooling tower. Take a picture of yourself beside that guy. On Wastewater Thursday, maybe you're doing a jar study or something. Take a picture of you doing that. And then Careers Friday, you get to get creative with what you do there. I want you to hashtag those to IWW21 and hashtag that to ScalingUpH2O. That way we can all join in the fun and we can celebrate this together. And as we have done each and every Industrial Water Week, you will have a brand new episode every day that week. That's our gift to you, the Scaling Up Nation. Folks, I hope to see so many people from the Scaling Up Nation at the Association of Water Technologies Convention in Providence, Rhode Island, I can't believe that we're so close to it. Last year, we weren't able to do it. We did a virtual version of it, and that was great. But it's so much better to see all of you. I can't wait to see the Scaling Up Nation. I can't wait to have conversations with you, hear all the things that you want to tell me about the podcast that truly is my favorite convention to go to. And you've heard that I cover dozens of conventions on this podcast. I have a passion for the Association of Water Technologies. I was president of that association. I was on the board for several years and I'm still involved in the educational committee as one of the trainers there. I absolutely love the AWT. Many of the friends that I have today are because I decided to invest time in the AWT, and the AWT has paid me back through friendships, through knowledge, through experience, through people that I can call when I see something that I just don't have an answer for. All of those things because I decided to get involved, I decided to give a little bit of my time. And because I decided to give, I got so much back. And maybe you can talk to some of the fine folks at AWT about joining one of their committees where you can start to give a little bit of yourself as well. Maybe AWT isn't the right organization for you. I promise you there is a right organization out there. Find that organization, figure out how you can get involved, and if you do, I promise you will never regret it. Well, folks, again, if you are at the Association of Water Technologies Convention, please look for me. I can't wait to see you, and I also can't wait to get to our next guest. Now, many of us have questions about what to do when we have a system that tests positive for Legionella. Or maybe there are some protocols that we have to do and we need some more information to learn what it is that we need to do to make sure that customer gets what they need on their water systems, so many questions, and I know you are going to enjoy our next guest. My lab partner today is Dr. Alberto Comazzi
1: of Santa How are you, Alberto? Okay, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Alberto Comazzi. I'm originally from Italy. You can probably tell from my accent. Hopefully, everybody will understand my my accent here. Um, I graduated uh, the University of Milan uh, a few years ago. Um, I got uh, a PhD in industrial chemistry and chemical engineering in the same university. As I was doing that, I did an internship uh, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for a few months. During my uh, college time, I used to work on water treatment and also oil and gas. So that's how um, I got involved with Sanipur. And that's how I got to know them, because we were collaborating on, on some projects uh, when I was working in the lab. Uh, I got to know them. I got my PhD. I asked them if they were looking for somebody. They said yes. They were looking for somebody to get trained in Italy and and then move here to America. So I said, well, let's do it. That's how I packed up on my suitcase, moved to Philadelphia, and started to work for San Pedro U.S., where... Right now, I am the technical director and business development manager. And in particular, Sanipur U.S. deals with supplemental disinfection technologies for water hygiene and water disinfection. I'm also a member of the ASHRAE 188 committee, and I'm a member also of the AWWA Premise Plumbing uh, Committee. What are some of the things that you're talking about in the ASHRAE 188 committee? Well, the ASHRAE 188 right now just uh, published the uh, ASHRAE Guideline 12. So there's been definitely a lot of work to get that published. It has been a a process that required quite a few years with some public reviews. I kind of joined ASHRAE 188 when that was already um, in process. So it's very interesting to be a part of that group because you can... Uh, literally talk with uh, world-class scientists and with the market leaders in the nation about uh, water treatment and, and water hygiene. So it's definitely uh, a good experience because you can bring your background at the table, but then there are a lot of knowledgeable people at the table and you can definitely learn a lot by joining those committees for sure.
0: What's something you miss about Italy that you just can't get in Philadelphia?
1: That's that's an easy question. That uh, there is an easy answer. It's it's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> there is good pizza here in Philly, but um, you know there are also a, a couple of good cheesesteak places where I can replace the pizza with a good cheesesteak here in Philadelphia. So I definitely miss that, but um, it's easy enough to go back home from Philadelphia. It's not that crazy. At, at least before the pandemic, I could fly out from New York and. Sometimes I flew back home just for a weekend, for a long weekend, so it's not that big of a deal. But Philly's is a good place, uh, especially when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, for sure. So, Pats or Genos? Neither of them. Jim's or South. There we go. We're all doing cheesesteak wrong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That, those, are, those two are the commercial places, you know, where the tourists go. Let's put it that way. There's no doubt about it.
0: We've had a lot of shows about Legionella. I think we've cleared up a lot of misconceptions about Legionella, about how the water treaters should talk with their customers about Legionella. But something we've never done before is have somebody that's directly involved with the secondary disinfection of that. So, that's what I'm really excited about today that we can talk to you and and talk about what we need to know when we do have a Legionella issue. What are our options? How do we go about remediating that? All of the questions that surround that. So, are you ready for that?
1: Absolutely. Can't wait.
0: So, let's just start there. So, let's say, and Scaling up Nation, if you have not reviewed some of the episodes prior to this episode to learn more about Legionella, I'll have a list on my show notes page so you can bone up on the topic and join us in this conversation armed with what we're talking about. So let's say we now have a Legionella water management plan. And in that plan, it says that if we got X amounts of Legionella bacteria, that we have to do some sort of remediation. And now we're there. We're now talking with somebody like yourself and we need to
1: get something set up. What do we do? Yeah, good question. Good question. And uh, you know, there is not a silver bullet here. There are different options that are usually written in the water management plan or uh, there are also different options that a building manager or building owner can look for in the marketplace. There are different techniques to either prevent or remediate Legionella. The first one, of course, is best is good water management practice. So, you know, flush, making sure that your temperature is well controlled. But in some cases, that is not enough. So in some cases, some buildings get to the point to what you just said, you know, they have a Legionella problem. So what what am I doing after, I figure out that I have a Legionella problem. Well, first of all, you need to test for Legionella. Unfortunately, as of right now, uh, testing for Legionella is not mandatory. So it's sort of a proactive action that the building uh, is taking. Um, Water management plans might suggest to test for Legionella, but it's not, as I said, it's not mandatory. But in my opinion, that is the only way to validate that Your plan is working. Otherwise, you're uh, kind of blind and you don't know if you actually have a Legionella problem or do not have a Legionella problem, or you don't know if your plan is working or not working. So let's pretend that we're testing for Legionella. We find Legionella. What are the options that we have? Usually what a lot of buildings do, uh, as soon as they have a problem with Legionella, they can implement heat and flush. So they increase the temperature of the water to a point where that temperature can kill Legionella, so usually above 160, and then they start to flush the system. Uh, there are some drawbacks with this remediation technique. Uh, the first one is that it's actually difficult to bring 160 water everywhere in the plumbing system. It could damage the plumbing system, it could scald somebody, and technically it could not be effective over the long term, because even if I'm taking care of the problem right now, from tomorrow, I still can have some Legionella coming in from from the city, because that's how Legionella comes in in my building, comes in from the city water. And plus, uh, as I said, if we don't get to that temperature everywhere in the system, there might be still some Legionella in the system that can eventually recolonize the building water system. Second technique of uh, remediation for Legionella um, are the point-of-use filters. So that is a physical barrier that we put between the building water system and the occupants of a building, and that physically prevents the bacteria to go through the filter. So typical Legionella filters are between 0.1 and 0.2 microns. The actual Legionella bacteria is bigger than that, so it cannot physically go through the filter. So the filter, uh, unless it's not working right or some mechanical problems happens, gives you pretty much uh, 100% uh, protection against Legionella. So in this case, it's easy to think, uh, well, why don't we install filters in every faucet and every showers in the country, but uh, it's not an effective solution. First of all, from a financial standpoint, uh, it's not cost effective. Second, these filters need to be replaced uh, on a regular basis. So they need to be replaced every month or every two months or every three months. So it requires a lot of manpower. Of course, if we think about a small building, it might not sound uh, like a big problem, but let's think about a big healthcare facility or a healthcare campus. We're talking about thousands of faucets and fixtures there. So it becomes very hard to handle that and to track of what filters are being used and what needs to be replaced. So what buildings usually do is to install these filters just in the areas where immunocompromised people are, such as the ICU or the NICU. So in those areas where uh, there are really immunocompromised patients, so we need that sort of 100% protection. Or the filters are also used in response of an outbreak or, or a case. Uh, you know, if the state gets involved, uh, they want to do something quick uh, so they can say, OK, uh, let's install the filters. They can usually, you know, whatever supplier, whatever filter supplier you choose, they can usually ship the filters overnight everywhere in the country. So it's a very plug and play solution over the, the short term. And then the third uh, type of techniques is called supplemental disinfectant. So here we can divide the disinfectant uh, or the disinfection process, let's say, in two different categories. So we have the shock treatment or we have the actual supplemental disinfectant uh, treatment. So the shock treatment, as the word shock say, it's something that, again, in, in a response of an outbreak a building can shock chlorinate the building plumbing system with either chlorine or chlorine dioxide, or in some cases, even with monochloramine. And they usually increase the level of disinfectant to a point that is much higher than what is allowed in drinking water. So at that point, the building needs to go on on water restriction. Nobody can use the water. They usually leave the building with the high level of disinfectant in the building plumbing system for a few hours, and then they flush it out. Again, this is kind of heat and flush. It could be effective over the short term, not really effective over the long term, because we have no effect on what's coming in from the uh, city from the day after. And also, uh, it could damage plumbing materials, and it can disrupt the biofilm to a point where it looks like it's working, but then you test after, after a month, and your levels are coming back up. So the supplemental disinfectant instead are a continuous treatment that a building implement. And so there is a a chemical feeder that keeps feeding chemicals as needed in the building in order to maintain the disinfectant level to a point that is safe for legionella remediation. And this is done mostly because when the public water utility delivers the water to the distribution system, by the time the water flows from the point of entry of the distribution system to the point of entry of your building, the disinfectant concentration will drop and most likely will drop below uh, to the point where it's not effective against uh, Legionella anymore. I think that most of the states require 02 parts per million at the point of entry of the water distribution system. I think Pennsylvania requires 0.2 at the point of entry of the building. I think New Jersey was talking about raising the levels at 0.50 at the point of entry of the building. But it's first of all, it's very challenging due to the nature of a public water utility. Second, even if we're talking about 0.2 or 0.50, it will likely not be enough to uh, keep the building safe from Legionella. So that's why in you know, most of the cases, a water management plan uh, suggests the use of a supplemental disinfectant. So we can make sure that the disinfectant levels in the building are at a level that are enough to kill the Legionella that is in the building already and kill the Legionella that is eventually entering the building water system.
0: Alberto, a lot of people will try heat and flush first. Is there any way to verify that we have reached 160 degrees through every part of the building?
1: Yes. Uh, the way to do that is when you flush the water from all the fixtures, it's physically going there with a, you know, a thermometer and, or a temperature probe and measure the temperature. Well, if you do that, you're sure that you're, you're reaching that temperature at the fixture but you're not sure that you're reaching that temperature everywhere in your plumbing system. Plus, if we think these about the time that we're required to do that for each fixture, we're talking about hours and hours of, of work. Uh, and plus, these are all hours where the building needs to be on, on water restriction as well, because you can deliver water at 160 Fahrenheit to, uh, for human consumption.
0: Something I've seen with filters is people forget to change them. You mentioned one, two, three. I've seen some that are good for six months. And then you look at the dates and it was 18 months since it was installed. Do they totally lose their effectiveness
1: as they age? I don't think that they lose their effectiveness one day after the expiration date. But uh, you need to keep track of that because if something happens uh, and then the state gets involved and then the filter was supposed to be changed a month ago, and, but it wasn't, and somebody got sick in that room, then there is room for litigation in that case. But I agree with you. That's why filters are usually used in just certain areas of, of the buildings. I have to be honest, though, there are some apps that right now you can install on your phone. And there is a QR code on the filters where you can scan the QR code as you're installing the filters. And then your app will tell you, you know, this filter in this room needs to be changed. So right now, of course, it's much easier to keep track of what needs to be done and what filters need to be changed. But of course, there is always the human factor into it. You know, there is always a notification that will come through on Friday afternoon at 4.30 p.m and somebody will will forget about that, you know. So, yes, uh, th- that is definitely a problem with the use of filters, you know, somebody forgets to to change them and um, uh, you know, if something happens, that could be a big big problem. And then the last thing
0: you mentioned was secondary disinfection and we we've got I guess two different flavors of that if you will. We have the continuous and then we have when somebody just brings something in for remediation. So, Can we break those two down? When is one appropriate over the other one?
1: And get your experience. So usually a shock disinfection, it's something that uh, is usually done in response to an outbreak. So there is a case, again, the state is involved. uh, You need to do something quick. So you call your water treatment provider and they can come in the same day. They can just hook up a system either at the point of entry of your building or on your domestical water system or both. And then they can just start to overfeed uh, a disinfectant in the system. And that's something that you do for a few hours and then you need to flush. But again, same drawbacks of heat and flush. So water restriction, a lot of time, you have to flush the entire building. You, In this case, as you asked, how can you make sure that you reach a certain concentration now here you got to a certain temperature, sorry. Now here you have to make sure that you reach a certain concentration uh, everywhere in the system, which is, you know, sometimes it's just impossible to do that. And a lot of different building water systems are uh, very different. So they have different design, different risers. So it's very hard to implement something like that in a building that you don't really know how the plumbing system is designed. Uh, Whereas a supplemental disinfectant system, it's something that you install and it's operating 24-7. So it keeps feeding disinfectant as needed in the building water system in order to keep the levels to a point where it's effective uh, against Legionella or other waterborne pathogens. And of course, there are different controls uh, based on different disinfectants that can be implemented in order to feed the disinfectant into, into a building. When we talk about supplemented disinfectant, we usually talk there are three EPA-listed disinfectants that are chlorine, chlorine dioxide, and monochloramine. And copper silver is used as well as a technology for as a supplemented disinfectant. And there are also other technologies out in the, in the marketplace, um, such as mixed oxidants. Uh, uh, there are different uh, chlorine dioxide generators that uh, generate chlorine dioxide in different ways. So, I mean, there are a lot of uh, solutions out there in the market, for sure.
0: In your experience, does one of those disinfectants work better than another?
1: Um, it depends on the, what is the target and what is the application. I would say that the most commonly used right now in the country are monochloramine, chlorine dioxide, and copper silver. Uh, Chlorine is something easy that can be used because it's basically just a a small dosing pump that feeds chlorine in a building. But it is widely reported in the literature that chlorine is not the the best option for Legionella remediation, at least in buildings. There are a lot of, of drawbacks with chlorine. Between monochloramine, chlorine dioxide, and copper silver, of course, each technology has its own pros and cons. I would say specifically for building water system, monochloramine is probably the best one uh, just because it's more stable. Uh, It's a much more stable molecule. And being more stable, it it is just uh, physically and chemically easier to carry a consistent residual throughout the, uh, the building water system. Of course, then there are some other applications for legionella remediation still, but let's talk about processed water and maybe the contact time, it's so short. Uh, so then we need to use a stronger disinfectant. So in that case, we might need to use chlorine dioxide, you know. So it kind of depends on uh, what the application is. But I would say for just strictly talking about building, then probably monochloramine is, is the best option.
0: There's probably a listener out there and they've just received a phone call from one of their customers and they say that they want to do supplemental disinfection. What should this listener start with? What questions should they ask the customer? How do they go about making sure they install it in the right process? What are all the things that needs to go through that person's mind as they're gearing up for this?
1: Good question. Yeah, because sometimes from the building standpoint, it's a lot to process, you know, especially if you're in a situation when you need to make some decision quick. So as I said, it's each building water system is different, but it's, um, there are some things that needs to be, that need to be taken, um, into account where installing a supplemental disinfection system. I would say, first of all, is talk with the building and, Uh, understand what is their target. So is their target just Legionella or are they concerned about different waterborne pathogens? Then the second question is, and this is the million dollar uh, question is, are we going to install the supplemental disinfection system on the incoming cold water from the city or just on the domestic cold water system? What I've seen here is that um, a lot of people, especially when you're talking with uh, people from the actual facility, from the building, if they don't have um, a water treatment background, they might think that treating the entire cold water is better because as I'm treating the cold water coming into the facility, then if I feed the disinfectant there, then I'm going to treat the entire water in the building. However, it is not that easy. So what, is, what matters at the end of the day is to establish a consistent residual for Legionella remediation in the domestic hot water system. Because Legionella is a thermotolerant pathogen that grows and colonizes well in warm water environments. So we want to make sure that we carry that residual all the way into the domestic hot water system in some facilities due to the nature of the plumbing system and when i say the nature is how far is the domestic water system from the point of entry of the building how long uh, does it take to turn over the entire domestic water system are there storage tank how many risers are in the building sometime if we feed the disinfectant just in the cold water it could be impossible to achieve a consistent disinfectant into the domestic water system. So, the first thing to do is get it's get familiar with the building water system, understand that, and make the application where it's needed. What we personally suggest, and is to for legionella remediation purposes, is to make the application on the domestic cold water treatment because that is where the problem uh, occurs and that's where you want to fix the problem. But of course, water treatment firms, they can, they can do both. They can install the system on the cold or install the, install the system on the hot. Our personal recommendation is to install it on the hot, and then we can explain that to the customer. It could be hard to explain uh, this old concept to a person who is not familiar with water treatment, but you know, at the end of the day, a water treatment provider, yeah, you kind of have to give your customer what your customer wants, but you want to give your customer what is going to work at the end of the day. But again... I say hot water and cold water, it depends where we are in the country. You know, if we're down in Florida or California or Texas, even if it's technically cold water during summer, that water could reach temperatures that could start to promote the growth of Legionella. So in those specific cases, it might make sense to treat both systems. So that's something that the water treatment provider needs to be aware. Of. And then other things is definitely... Which kind of disinfectant is the municipality using? Uh, what what are the level of disinfectants coming in from the municipality? Sometimes are very low, sometimes are up kind of high, based on where the facility is. And you know, see if there are, as I said, get familiar with the with the building water system in order to uh, to make the application to make the application right for for your customer. This is something that uh, also you know when we talk about. Um, what a water management plan, there is usually a water management team. So as a water treatment provider is trying to help a, his customer with, in answering these questions, there are usually other people sitting at the table in order to try to figure out what the best option is. It's not just about the water treater and the building owner or, or manager.
0: You mentioned finding out what disinfection the municipality is using. Is there any time you don't want to use one of our secondary disinfectants because the municipality is using something?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. It, it, it's just important to understand what is coming in from, uh, from the city so you can make your application properly. So let's pretend that you know, the level that is coming in from the city will vary based on season and based on time uh, so it's not going to be always the same throughout the year so i want to know what's coming in so as the word supplementals say i will just supplement what is necessary in order to achieve what i'm trying to achieve so let's pretend that the municipality is using monochloramine and i want to install a monochloramine system in the building i want to make sure that i know what is coming in so i can just add on top of that what i need you know and control based on that as well uh same if i'm using free chlorine or same if i'm feeding free chlorine on top of monochloramine uh because if the city is using monochloramine and i feed free chlorine on top of that uh there could be some reaction that could lead some, to certain uh products that um for you know for the end user so for the building occupants could you know smell weird or something like that so uh, this is drinking water so you want to make sure that uh you make the application right with
0: all the different disinfectants we have to choose from are some better choices for the building piping systems than others
1: Again, it depends. You know, a, a disinfectant is an oxidant. Uh, so as an oxidant, it will have the tendency to react and kill the bacteria. But of course, it will have the tendency to react with plumbing components, uh, you know, gasket or rings, uh, copper, plastic plumbing components. So yeah, that's a good question, and that's something that uh, the water treatment provider should look at as well. Uh, what are the materials of construction? Uh, you know, most of the time it's copper, but there are some buildings where where they have plastics. So if they have plastics, uh, for sure, uh, using chlorine dioxide is not a best, uh, a be- is not a good idea because chlorine dioxide is a gas dissolved in solution that could. Oxidize the plasticizer and damage the um, plastic components of the piping, as well as if we're using chlorine in a system that is uh, made just basically with copper, we gotta take into account that we might see some pitting corrosion down the road, um, especially if the application of the disinfectant is not made in the way it's supposed to. So, uh, depends how you control it. You know, um, I'm not a big fan of controlling a disinfectant in a building with a probe. I like to control disinfectant in the building based on water flow. So that is a fixed number and it's much more reliable than a probe. But there are some water treatment provider and manufacturer that uh, control the disinfectant just with a probe. And if the probe goes bad or is not calibrated, you could overfeed the system. And by overfeeding the system, you could potentially damage the plumbing components.
0: Earlier, you mentioned other pathogens. What are these other pathogens we should be looking at?
1: Yeah, good question. So everybody is concerned about Legionella, right? Because all the literature out there is about Legionella. Usher 188 is about Legionella. The guideline 12 is about Legionella. The CMS letter that came out in 2017 is about Legionella. So everybody's concerned about Legionella, but Legionella is not the only pathogen out there that could be harmful for humans. I would say two other pathogens that are uh, harmful for, for humans are definitely Pseudomonas and uh, non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. When we have the conversation with the customers, and that is definitely something that we want to bring up because in some cases the customer is concerned about Pseudomonas. So you may want to make the application... Uh, on the cold water in that case, because the customer is concerned about pseudomonas. And another uh, point here, you know, as I said, uh, it's all about, you know, for everybody, it's all about Legionella. And specifically, it's always all about Legionella in healthcare facilities. So there is this interest in reducing the risk associated with Legionella in a healthcare environment. Because, of course, a hospital, or nursing homes, that's where, you know, immunocompromised people are. But it is not just about healthcare facilities. There is business and there are opportunities out there in buildings that are not healthcare facilities. Uh, all big buildings with big recirculating uh, domestical water system are at risk for Legionella. And, you know, hotels, casinos, probably even more than a healthcare facilities because the volumes of water in there, uh, it, it's much higher. But definitely the conversation in that case with the uh, building management, it's much harder because sometimes they don't even know about Legionella. They don't even know what it is. So uh, it's not just about Legionella and it's not just about healthcare facilities, especially right now that we're coming out from COVID and buildings are reopening. There is definitely an increased awareness about Legionella and other waterborne pathogens from people that come not just from the healthcare industry.
0: Are there special permits or licenses that are needed in order to administer supplemental disinfection?
1: This is the very, very, very tough question that, uh, you know, when uh, somebody has the questions, there is not a uniform answer, you know, to, to, this, uh, to this question. It depends where you are in the country. So it depends in which state you are. Um, different states different requirements. Usually we can find three different approaches to that. So the first approach is there is not any requirement. So the water that is de- delivered from the city is already drinking water. So that's already safe. So you, you want to apply supplemental disinfectant, do that, but you don't have to apply for uh, for anything. Then there are some states such as Florida or Connecticut, Let's say if you want to implement the supplemental disinfectant on the cold water, then you need to apply for a permit. Whereas if you want to implement the disinfectant just on the hot water, then you do not need to apply for a permit simply because people don't drink, usually don't drink hot water. And then there are states where you need to apply for a permit regardless to where you're applying the supplemental disinfectant. So this is the First step, you know, understanding whether or not you have to apply for a permit or not. Second step is, okay, I figure out I need to apply for a permit. What do I need to do? So first of all, understand who is the authority having jurisdiction in that state. Different states have different, you know, authority having jurisdiction. So uh, either the DEP, DOH, the EPA. Uh, so you need to understand that first where to actually apply for the permit. Then when you apply for the permit, the common requirements of a permit are having an engineering drawing stamped by a PE who is uh, licensed in that uh, in that state. And then there's also a certified operator uh, that needs to oversee the supplemental disinfection equipment. But again, this is another step that it's very difficult to understand. Okay, so does the certified operator need To be on site every day to just look at a a couple of pumps pumping chemical into the system or does he have to be in once a month or since we can monitor the system online he can just check that online and that is good enough it's very difficult to understand that different states have different requirements in regards to that plus when i say certified operator that is something that is related to a public water supply. So that is a guy who has a license to be a, an operator on a public water utility, which is much different than a building water system. There are different skills that are required in a building water system versus a public water utility. So for example, in a building water system, water flows in different directions. There are cooling towers, there are softeners, there are boilers. Uh, stuff that we don't have in a public water supply. A uh, building water system has a recirculating hot water system. A public water utility does not. A building water system has hot water heaters. So there are some. There is definitely an overlap in the skills. Of course, understanding disinfectants and you know understanding the chemistry of these disinfectants. But there are definitely some skills that do not match between. A public water supply operator and a building water system operator. So that is why right now there is a lot of work in AWWA in order to develop, you know, a training program for building water systems. So that will make it much easier for people in the water treatment industry to apply and to become certified for that. And I literally think that a person who has a CWT is definitely qualified to uh, run uh, supplemental disinfection system much better than uh, a building who runs a public water utility. Just because a person who has a CWT is, is used to a building water system, they know what's going on in a building plumbing system. So that is the, you know, the challenges that a building has to face when applying a supplemental disinfectant is, first of all, do I need to apply for a permit? If I do, what are the requirements? Unfortunately, because of that, sometimes the effect is the opposite. Sometimes the building says, you know what, I don't really want to apply for that. I don't really want to go through the whole permit. I don't want to spend more money. I don't have an operator on site. I My water treatment provider doesn't have an operator. I don't want to hire another person. So unfortunately, sometimes they say, well, even if the water management plan suggests me I should implement a supplemental disinfectant, I don't really want to spend that kind of money. And um, so they actually are going... The, the whole permit application is made to protect the public health, to make sure that the disinfection application is made in the proper way. But sometimes it, the requirements are so tough that the building says, you know what, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to go for something that is not... at le- as effective as a supplemental disinfectant but it's too much for me to deal with that
0: are you seeing more language that a certified water technologist a cwt is
1: qualified to be an operator that is definitely something that as a a member of that awwa premise plumbing committee that is definitely something i'm trying to push in order to make that happen Because that is literally the way it is. Uh, You know, we want to make sure that the person who is running the equipment has a good understanding of what is going on in the building. I've been to the AWT classes. Um, I'm pretty sure that just by adding, uh, you know, one or a couple of more lessons about a building water system, what is the potable side of a building water system, definitely the water treatment providers will from AWT will definitely don't have any issue in learning that. I mean, we all know that some, uh, you know, sometimes we get to work, uh, Sanitur does not do anything direct. You know, we our customers are water treatment provider that then at the end of the day will deal with the end user. And most of our customers are AWT firms. And, you know, you definitely know that some firms have been in buildings for more than 20 years because there is that kind of a relationship between, between the building manager and the water treatment firm. So, literally, those guys are the ones that know how the water goes in that building. I mean, they're, they're probably they probably know more than the the building people. Uh, you know, so that's why it's it's very important that a certification for a building water operator will be developed, and so that people from water treatment firm can be certified and help uh, with that you know, and there are already certifications out in the market for, to better understand uh, Legionella, you know, the AC12080, that is definitely a valuable certification. I'm certified to that as well. And that, you know, brings a lot of knowledge uh, for, for people that might not be completely involved in, in the Legionella and water hygiene market. When you go to a trade
0: show, such as the Association of Water Technologies, what are some of the most common questions you get asked about this?
1: Um, it depends. Uh, depends who you're talking with. Uh, there are some firms that are very involved in the Legionella market. So they are more interested about the technology. Uh, you know, they might already have some customers where they are apl- applying supplemented disinfectants. So in that case, they might just be more uh, interested in, OK, tell me about your system. Why? Does your system work better than others? And what are the pros and the cons? On the other hand, there are some firms that are not involved in the water hygiene market. So in that case, you get more questions about why should I get involved in the water hygiene market? You know, why should I start to treat drinking water and be involved in the Legionella market? You know, and uh, well, the way I always answer that question is, uh, first of all, Uh, Because you literally save lives uh, by doing that. Uh, You know, you will never know who you saved because you saved them. But, you know, you definitely save some people. It's like wearing a mask uh, with COVID. You know, you're saving people, but you don't know who you're saving. So definitely because of public health, you're actually helping public health. uh, You're helping buildings. uh, But also, um, you know, you might doing the water treatment in the building and then all of a sudden, that building has a Legionella problem, and they bring in another vendor to take care of the Legionella, and then because you didn't have an offering, because you didn't pursue that market. And then next thing you know, you are competing with the other vendor for your water treatment that you were doing in that building, you know, cooling towers and boilers. So you kind of want to keep yourself outside of that area, you know outside of that jeopardy. Uh, you know, and because I we've seen that happening a lot that, you know, you don't have the offering, someone else comes in and then they start to, you know, go after your business that you're doing in the building. Uh, not that this is the most important question, reason, definitely the most important is helping public health, but this is something that companies, uh, water treatment firms need to understand right now. And also right now, as we're coming out of the pandemic, The awareness about Legionella and other waterborne pathogens is much, much higher than two years ago for two main reasons. The first one is that buildings now are reopening, so they have to disinfect and eventually test for Legionella. So they might figure out that they have a problem and then they got to do something about it. And also, just for an awareness of infections in general, you know, before COVID. I think that a lot of people downplayed Legionella uh, because you don't have that feeling with an infection and you kind of feel that it will never happen to you. But right now, people are much more serious about pulmonary infections. I mean, at least from our standpoint, we have seen a very, you know, increased business uh, between the end of 2020 and 2021 is definitely going up very fast. So you have thousands
0: of water treaters listening to you right now. How can you help them avoid some of the pitfalls that you've seen some people experience? What are those pitfalls and what shouldn't we be doing?
1: You know, if, if a supplemental disinfectant is misapplied, uh, then it could, be, it could do more harm than good. So um, as we were saying before, you need to understand what you have to look for and you need to make the application in the correct way. Uh, Because otherwise, you know, if the application is not made in the correct way, you're not going to remediate Legionella and somebody can get sick, you know. And I've seen that a lot, that uh, some uh, buildings uh, decided to maybe apply the disinfectant just on the cold water and then didn't fix the problem. And then they, you know, they had to go back and rethink about the whole application. There are a lot of case studies uh, out there of failed uh, supplemental disinfection application because the application was not made right. Make sure that you get the right equipment. Uh, you get an equipment with uh, safety features. Keep in mind that it's drinking water. People drink that water. So we want to make sure that there is a, a level of precision that is much higher than you know, other forms of water treatment. Uh, make sure that when you um, pick a, a product manufacturer and you decide to go with a certain technology, make sure that that manufacturer is reliable. So make sure that you have somebody who can help you if, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, the water treater is the guy out in the field. So make sure that you have support from that, um, manufacturer. If something happens, you know, you have somebody, somebody you can call and, you know, maybe on a cell phone and make sure that they are available. I mean, I wouldn't say 24 seven, but you know, you want to make sure that if you're, uh, if you need something, um, You know, get somebody who can help you. Get a product manufacturer who is experienced in in this market so they can help you if something happens, even in the case of, uh, you know, anything that can happen from the failure of the equipment or you need to help the end user. And then for sure, test for Legionella. Uh, You know, if you test for Legionella, it's proactive. It is more expensive than don't test. Yes but believe me it is much cheaper to be proactive and test instead of not testing and then something happens and then the state gets involved at that point you're not on your clock anymore at that point the state will tell you how many times you have to uh to test how often you have to test and where you have to test so at that point Someone else is going to decide how much you have to test for Legionella. You know, so if you keep testing for Legionella, you figure out you have a problem, then you know what to do. You just follow your water management plan and you know what to do. You know how to fix it. Whereas if you just don't do anything, you're just blind. And then if something happens, you're, you're in big, big danger. And unfortunately, that is the message that comes from a lot of time from facility people. You get some people that are very proactive and they even want to test before they implement anything to establish a baseline, which I believe is the right way to do. Um, and then you have to some people that just say, well, you know what? Nobody tells me I have to test, so I don't want to test. Because then if I test and I find it, I got to do something about it. But guess what? Nobody tells you you have to test. But at the end of the day, if you are the building owner or the building manager, ultimately, you are the person who is responsible for the safety of the occupant of of the building. So even if nobody told you you had to test, if something happens to the people in your building, you will be uh, involved into the litigation process no matter what. So testing is the right thing to do. If you
0: could only get one point across today from our interview, what do you want that point to be?
1: My point will be that for a lot of water treatment firms that are not involved into the water hygiene and legionella market to think about getting involved in that market i feel that a lot of people are scared about this market because it's drinking water and they think that they don't want to deal with drinking water but at the end of the day you are responsible no matter what even if you're treating the cooling tower because you know legionella can grow in cooling towers as well so i feel that some water treatment firms decided they don't want to go down that path of the water hygiene market but on the other hand i think it would be a good idea at least to take into account the idea of well let's think about it you know let's evaluate what are the pros and the cons let me think with some product manufacturer or or some consultant What are the business opportunities that are out there and that I can pursue if I enter this market?
0: Well, I have a few lightning round questions for you. So we're not quite done with the interview yet. Let's do it. All right. So I asked these of all my guests. So you now have the power to go back to your first day working with water pathogens. What
1: advice would you give yourself? Oh, this is a tough question. I I don't know. I would say that when I started to work in this uh, market, I always had really good teachers. So my uh, boss back home and my boss here, uh, you know, really good teachers. They can, you know, they taught me well, not just about the chemistry of disinfectants, but also about, you know, waterborne pathogens in general. So, probably the advice that I would give myself is do as you did, listen to your boss, you know, and uh, you won't be, you won't regret that. And uh, uh, yeah, for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, if somebody gets involved in, in this market, definitely try to get involved uh, even in, in organizations that have committees about, you know, Legionella and other waterborne pathogens. Because as I said, that's where you literally find the world class scientists that can teach you a lot. What are the last few books that you've read? So unfortunately, I don't read a lot of books. I read a lot of uh, scientific literature. So you know, I read, I think that the last uh, uh, journal I read was, I think, Journal of AWWA a few weeks ago. And of course, as an Italian, I read uh, recipe books because I like to cook. So that's what i like to do that is, that is for relaxing you know after you're done at work every day you go home and you uh, uh read some good recipe and uh, that you cook it favorite thing to cook uh, it depends on the it depends on the time of the year i like to cook lasagna when it's winter uh you know i like to cook that i like to cook uh milanese uh you know during during spring and fall so it kind of depends uh my friends and i usually when we watch the eagles every sunday we usually, uh, you know, go to someone's place and we do big dinner and someone cooks, you know, every time. So unfortunately, sometimes, even, even if it's not a thing in Italy, I had to cook spaghetti and meatballs. So for uh, all the, the, the people here, it is not a thing in Italy. If you're going to Rome, don't ask for that. They'll just look at you funny. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, let me ask this question. If there are people listening today that want to learn more about this topic, are there certain books or journals you would recommend to them? About lasagna or about Legionella? (laughs) Yes, about lasagna, of course. (laughs) (laughs) About supplemental disinfection.
1: About supplemental disinfection. um, uh, About Legionella in general, I think uh, there is a lot of information on the EPA website, Uh, On the EPA website, there is a a review of the technologies that uh, uh, have been used for supplemental disinfectants. So, you know, that uh, that is definitely a good point to start. I think that back in 2019, there was a report published by the National Academy of Science, which is free to download. That is a very big report, but that is definitely something that can help people to, you know, understand the world of supplemental disinfectants. And then, you know, sign up for conferences like uh, AWT. There is an NSF Legionella conference every year. I think this year uh, is in two sessions. One is already done, was already done. I don't remember when the other one is, but uh, that is just specifically about Legionella. So there is a lot to learn there. And then there are a lot of uh, scientific peer-reviewed paper. But for somebody who has to learn about the topic, that's where I would start, you know. I would start from the EPA website, the National Academy of Science Report, and go to conferences to get familiar with, you know, to kind of frame the issue, frame the problem, and frame what are the options to fix the problem. And then after that, you can do your homework and find what are the, you know, the, the pros and cons of each technology, you know.
0: When Hollywood makes a movie about Dr. Alberto
1: Camazzi, who plays you. This is a very easy question. You know why? Because I'm bald, so I would say either Vin Diesel or Bruce Willis. There you go. <laughs> be an action movie. <laughs> exactly. Be an action movie. Final question. You now
0: have the ability to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why?
1: Um, I don't know. I think there are uh, probably a bunch of people I would talk with. Uh, mostly, I'm a chemist, so mostly chemists. Uh, I would pick probably the uh, only uh, chemistry Nobel Prize that Italy ever won. So Giulio uh, in the 60s, he won the Nobel Prize for uh, polypropylene. Uh, so I will definitely I will be happy to go back in time and, um, and talk with him. When I was in college, uh, I had this um, professor. He was the head of the research of these uh, big, big, big chemical companies. Chemical company, who was called Montedison uh, back in the days, and they were involved in the, uh, you know, in the process of the development of the catalyst to produce uh, polypropylene. So, you know, he would tell these stories about, you know, how things were back in the '60s. It was a big time for uh, the industry, uh, especially the chemical industry in Italy. So, I it would definitely be. Uh, more than happy to go back in time and talk with them. Uh, This professor I had, which, by the way, he just passed away a few months ago, but uh, he published this book, which that is probably one of the last books I read. Uh, You know, he published this book about all the crazy stories, you know, crazy industrial stories and, you know, the the story of the chemical industry in Italy about those years. It's very very interesting, you know, of course. For somebody who's not from there, it's kind of hard to learn about that, but it's a very interesting story.
0: Well, Alberto, I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O. We've never had your perspective on Legionella before. So I know we've answered a lot of questions and I'm sure we've created even more. So get ready for some more questions, probably going straight to your email.
1: That will be good. You know, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be there ready to answer the questions. So I just can't wait to um, see everybody at the show this year in, in Rhode Island.
0: Nation, as with everything, the more information that you are armed with, the better decisions that you can make. And more importantly, the better conversations that you can have with your customer and they can make better decisions. It's all about knowing the right information, weighing all the facts. And then putting that together in a way that people can follow you in a conversation. And notice I did not say a lecture. I said a conversation. When you're teaching somebody something, when you're trying to arm them with information to make better decisions, it must be a conversation, a give and take. I'm going to tell you some of this. What questions do you have? Let me answer your questions. When you do that, I promise your customer will elevate how they see you and they will look at you as a trusted advisor. And trust me, when you get elevated to the level of trusted advisor, they're going to come to you with more decisions on things that you can impact. And, folks, It is so much better to be at that position than to walk into that account next month and find out that they made a decision without you and maybe it wasn't the best decision. Or maybe it's a decision that's going to make your life miserable. If we all start out working together, if we all start out with the best information, we can make the best decisions and that will make everybody's life way easier. You know, a a little fact about water treatment, Dr. Richard Seligman invented the heat exchanger on this day back in 1923. Just think about all the things that we do that involve heat exchangers, two bodies of water that never touch, but they're able to transfer their heat. Would we have a job if it wasn't for Dr. Seligman? I don't know. It would definitely be different. And for those of you that live in places that don't have economizer systems, and for those of you that don't know what they are, I'm so envious of you. Here in Atlanta, where we have very mild temperatures, an economizer system is where there's a three-way valve between the closed loop and the cooling tower loop, and they mix tower water with closed water. Yuck. Why would anybody do that? Those are totally different systems and they do that so they don't have to turn on the chiller and they can get quote unquote free cooling. Well, there's nothing free about that. They're putting all that nasty water from the cooling tower and all the debris that gets sucked in with the cooling tower. Well, hey, that's now introduced in your closed loop system. Nobody wants that. Nobody's got time for that. Well, Dr. Seligman's invention allows us to do the same thing, but we don't mix the two systems. And hopefully you're getting the same results with a plate frame heat exchanger or some other heat exchanger. And eventually all the buildings here in Atlanta will catch up with that technology. But unfortunately, that's not the case right now. So say a prayer, do whatever you need to do to help water treaters in the Atlanta area that have to suffer with this free cooling, don't have a heat exchanger on the closed loop and cooling tower. All right, that's my little vent for the day. Folks, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I am so excited about seeing so many of you at the AWT convention. That's coming up just next week. If you are coming, make sure you find me at 11 a.m. on Friday, September 24th. We are going to have a meetup that is where you, the Scaling Up Nation, are going to come to Chiller's Lounge. If you come to the AWT convention, you're going to know exactly where that is, and you're going to meet up with fellow Scaling Up Nation members. It's going to be a quick event. It's going to be something where you get to network, you get to meet some people, and the conversation is so easy to start because you all listen to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Again, that's going to be at 11 a.m. in Chillers Lounge on Friday, September 24th at the AWT convention. Folks, I can't wait to see you there. I can't wait to bring you another brand new episode next week. In the meantime, take care of your customers. Make sure you're getting the information you need so you're properly educated about whatever it is that you're talking about and you can lead your customer to the best decision they can make. Have a great week, folks. Why do we call our mastermind the rising tide mastermind? Well, I know you've heard me say before, a rising tide raises all ships. That's one of my favorite quotes because it's so true. The better we do, the better somebody else can do and vice versa. That's exactly what the rising tide mastermind is. It's our members helping other members to achieve success and to get there further and faster. To find out more about the Rising Tide Mastermind, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.